Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Judge Ladoris Hazard Cordell about her new book, Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. Judge Cordell served as a California state judge for nearly 20 years. At the time of her appointment, she was the first African-American woman judge in all of Northern California. Judge Cordell, a graduate of Stanford Law School, is also an artist and pianist and resides in Northern California with her partner and is the proud mom of two daughters. Judge Cordell, welcome to That Said. Thank you so much, Michael. I'm delighted to be talking with you. Well, so you've written this wonderful book called Her Honor, My Life on the Bench, What Works, What's Broken, and How to Change It. And I'd like to talk over the course of our hour about the book. But before we do, could you tell us about yourself? Where were you raised? Where did you go to school? What did your parents teach you? Sort of questions sure. and answers. Sure. Uh, I was raised on the East Coast in a suburb just outside of Philadelphia called Ardmore. And Ardmore has an interesting history in that um, it was back in the day when I grew up. So we're talking the uh, early 50s and 60s. Uh, it was um, a divided community uh, in that it was a black community. And that's where I lived and grew up. And on the other side of the tracks, and almost literally the tracks, uh, there was something called the main line. The main line on the East Coast was really named after a train, but the main line is where old money in this country uh, is settled. So we have the Heinz families, DuPont families, and others, and they lived on the main line. And the black folks in Ardmore were the service community for the wealthy white folks on the main line. So both of my grandmothers were the help. Uh, They were domestics. I had uh, one of my grandfather on my mother's side uh, was a cook at the Haverford School, which is a private prep school for little boys, all of whom uh, for many, many years were white and wealthy. Um, So I um, grew up with my two sisters. I'm a middle um, and my and went to public schools. And fortunately, because of where our home was located, the school district that we went to was a predominantly white public schools. So I've got very, very good education. I was usually the only black person in my classes in high school. And uh, my parents operated a dry cleaning business um, in Ardmore. And many of their customers were people who lived, wealthy white folks who lived on the main line. My parents supported all of us with this dry cleaning business. And in the summers, I hated it, but we had to work at the dry cleaning business, and uh, the work ethic was just very important to my family, to everybody, basically, who lived in um, our side of the tracks. Uh, My parents did not have the opportunity to go and get an advanced education. My father went to college for a bit in North Carolina. And but they made it clear that their children were going to college. It was only about the question of where uh, my sisters and I uh, all went to college and we all have graduate degrees. I'm the only one that decided to go into the law and the first in uh, family to do that. And um, my parents were, were my role models. They didn't preach at us. What they did was uh, show by example what it means to live a good life, which is to be kind to people and to give back. My parents were very active in the community. They were community activists. Uh, the dry cleaning business ended up being kind of a center of political activity in the black community. And uh, so I saw by example. 
And as a result of that, part of my DNA is to do just that. Uh, Don't get a big head. Don't think I'm all that. And remember that I stand on the shoulders of others. Um, I think that about gives a sense, I think, of of where I'm from. My my mother's family did come up in the Great Migration from North Carolina. Uh, My maternal grand, great-grandmother and great-great-grandmothers were the enslaved. And then after emancipation and the 13th Amendment, they ended up in North Carolina. And my mother was born along with her two siblings in North Carolina, but not in the hospital in the the city of Weldon because Black folks were not allowed to be patients in the hospital. So she was born in a house, their house. And eventually they came up in 1930 when the Great Depression hit. They lost everything, uh, their bank, whatever money they had in the bank in North Carolina and came up north to Pennsylvania. And that's where they settled. And that's where I grew up. It's interesting. You left the East Coast. My daughter went to Haverford College. So I know I know exactly where the Haverford School is and Haverford College is. And you left the East and all of these great liberal arts schools and traveled to Yellow Springs, Ohio, to Antioch University, which then was probably the most progressive university in the United States. Undoubtedly. Then it was Antioch College located in Yellow Springs, Ohio, which is a village. It's not a town or a city. And it was a stop on the Underground Railroad. So you'll find in Yellow Springs, Ohio, um, there are a good number of biracial families, mixed race, because of the history of Yellow Springs. Uh, so Antioch, indeed, was back then. So back then, I'm talking about I went to college in the late 60s into the early 70s, was probably the most progressive college in this country. So we, and the one big area in which it was, it stood out was that it had no grades. Uh, You go to college to learn for learning's sake, not to get a grade, uh, which was a real flip for me because in, I went to Haverford High School and at Haverford High School was about grades and getting really high test scores. Um, So it was a switch for me, but I deliberately went there because I wanted that experience and also the experience of their co-op program. At Antioch, you want to go to school three months at a time, and you have to pack up and leave. Just go. Um, And they have co-op jobs, or you can create your own. And my first was to go to the Mississippi Delta. I was 17 years old and had never really been away from home and hopped on a train and lived on the Mississippi Delta in Myersville, Mississippi, for from September straight through the end of December. This was in 1967 when there was a whole lot of uh, civil rights work going on and uh, a lot of um, just really interesting issues. That's where I started really to grow up. So you were there as a freshman in college. That's correct. Pretty remarkable. So you graduate Antioch and then you go probably from one extreme to the other, which is Stanford Law School, which is anything but loosey-goosey, no grades. Absolutely. Now it's all about the grades. And I'm in a situation where I'm the only black woman in my class. There are no professors of color and no female professors. So I'm, it's, it was culture shock. At the same time, um, I knew that I wanted to use my skills in sub-fashion uh, use, utilizing the legal system in order to to do good. And uh, so 
I toughed it out. And in toughing it out, I made uh, friends with some wonderful law professors there who continue to be, some of them continue to be my mentors uh, after I left law school and went on to do my work in the community and then on the bench. You graduate and you open up your own law firm in East Palo Alto, which is practice that revolves around criminal defense, family, civil rights, personal injury. Tell us a little bit about your law offices. Sure. What I did then and leaving law school, I would never do today. So I graduated from Stanford Law School and I could not get a job. So I interviewed at some of the corporate law firms in the Bay Area. And in fact, one at one interview, one of the partners in the firm said to me, this is a fine interview, but we're not ready to hire a black woman. Mm-hmm. Really said that to me. And I sat there stunned and then realized I had to do something because I had student loans to pay. And if I couldn't get a job, um, the way I was raised and many um, black folks are raised and, and part of my upbringing was in the black church is that you make a way where there seems to be no way. And there seemed to be no way because I had law school and college uh, law school loans to pay college loans to pay off. And so that's when um, I went to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, which is based in now based in Washington, but was based in New York. And I applied for an Earl Warren Fellowship. The Earl Warren Fellowships were given out to uh, lawyers of color who just graduated from law school. And it was a stipend over a period of four or five years to, to help lawyers open up practices in communities in the South where there had never been lawyers. I convinced them to give me a fellowship to open a law practice on the West Coast where there had never been a lawyer. And that was East Palo Alto at the time, a predominantly low-income black and brown community. So with the Earl Warren Fellowship, I just right out of law school, went out and began practicing law. I had to, uh, there was no law office in East Palo Alto, so I had to buy a building and have it renovated and open a law practice. That's a whole other story about how someone with no money and law school loans was able to buy a building, but I did, um, and opened my law practice. And I practiced law in East Palo Alto. And as you noted, Michael, practiced all manner of cases. And I went to other attorneys to ask them to, refer cases to me. And what they would do, they'd give me their, oh, they even told me, these are our shit cases. You know, we don't want them, but you can have them. And that's how really I got started and uh, just right out of the block, began practicing law. And what I want to put in here is that um, I got married after my second year in law school. I'm now divorced, but after my second year in law school, and I realized if I wanted to have kids, I mean, I've got this, the, the clock's ticking in terms of when I can have kids. And so it was Actually, when I just before I began my law practice, I had my first child Um, and you just figure it out. You just kind of figure it out. And then I have I have I have two daughters, uh, both of whom are grown and have children of their own. I now have five grandchildren. Um, But that was what it was about. So you you make a way where there's no way buy a building where you have no money, start a law practice, practice law and then have kids and and make it work. So I did that and practiced law for six and a half years in East Palo Alto. You wrote of your parents that when they married in 1943, they had neither an inheritance nor a nest egg to get them started. What they did inherit was a terrific work ethic and a powerful drive to succeed. And clearly that came through their genes right to you. Thank God. Yeah, thank God indeed. So before we get to you're becoming a judge. I'd like to ask you just about the book. Why did you 
write it? And what was your writing practice? I was amazed in reading the book how elephantine your memory was, uh, particular cases and tenures on the various divisions of the court that you rotated through. So tell us a little about that. And thank you for asking that. Um, the last seven years of, that I was on the bench, I wrote letters to my parents every Friday. Why I started writing them then, I don't know. But I know that my parents loved to hear about all the cases that I was presiding over, and I would talk to them almost daily. So I started writing letters, not for them to write back, but then to just to tell them what I was doing. And every Friday afternoon, the courts tend to lighten up a little bit so you prepare for the cases coming in the following week. And I sat, and, and Michael, I'm not talking emails. I'm talking letters. Like, And I think it's a lost art where writing letters, I think people love to get letters. And I mean, with the postage stamp and the whole bit. So I wrote letters to my parents every Friday about everything that happened that week. I mean, the names of the cases, the people, how I felt when I something would happen in court and how hard some things were. And I didn't keep any copies of the letters. These were letters to my parents. After I retired from the bench, I made a trip back east to Ardmore. And at some point, my mother said, what do you want me to do with these? And she pulls this box out of her closet. My mother was a very organized woman. And I looked and she had kept every one of my letters. I was stunned. So I'm like, okay. So I packed them up, mailed them back here to California. And it took me two or three years to begin to read the letters. And I was just stunned by what I read in that I, I just hadn't really realized how many cases I, I had presided over and the variety of them. So that's when the idea started with me to think about how maybe, you know, this might be fodder for a book. So I kind of let it go at that point. And then um, there was uh, something maybe we'll talk about. Uh, there was the something that happened here in California that really said to me, I need to write this book. Um, the purpose of this book her honor is to educate people about the legal system, to entertain by doing it and keep it entertaining. And I also wrote it to energize readers to think about and then take action to to fix many of the things that are broken in our legal system. So I called my book a primoire. So it's part primer and part memoir. It's great. And it is both. I'd like to turn to 1980. So you're practicing law now about six-ish years, and you get a call from a guy named Mark Thomas. Tell us who he is and what did he ask you and what course did that set your life in? When Mark Thomas called me, I was an assistant dean at Stanford Law School, and I still had my law practice in East Palo Alto, albeit part-time. I did not know who this man was. He said, I'm a judge and in the county in which you live, this was Santa Clara County, right here in Silicon Valley. And he said, we have at our court a pro tem judge program where you can be a judge for a day and preside over small claims cases. And for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with small claims, it's Judge Judy cases, you know, where you can't have lawyers. You have a judge presiding over people suing each other over not great amounts of money. Uh, so he said, I'm trying to diversify the the pro tem lawyers who can the lawyers who can sit as pro tem judges uh, and add women and people of color can I put you on the pro tem list and you'll just get a call one day and you can come down and preside over a case at that point I never thought about judging I had never seen if I'd seen a black judge maybe one and there were not the the the, the proliferation of 
judges of color and women uh, then as there are now, let's say, for example, on TV. So I said, sure, judge, put me on the list. And that was it. And I kind of forgot about it until I don't know if it was a few months later, I get a call saying your name has come up and it's just random. You know, your name comes up next and come to this courthouse and you'll preside over a case. That case, presiding over that case is what said to me, this is what you should be doing with your legal career. You should be a judge. Um, and the case, I'm not going to um, get into the specifics. I just want to tell, it's a teaser. I just say to people that I got into judging because of hair and H-A-I-R, because of hair. And initially, I'll just say it was two black women, which was a stunner, coming into, that's the courtroom I walked into, two black women suing each other, and it was all about their hair. It's a great story. I was going to have you tell it, but let's leave it as the tease so people will go out and buy the book. Because I remember when I read that first chapter and you were talking about the unusual confluence of two black litigants and you as judge, there were no African-American judges on the municipal court at the time, talking about hair. I thought, that's a great first story for a book. <laughs> if this is not going to bring readers in, you know, <laughs> they got, got other things to worry about. So you're smitten by judging, which is sort of a funny thing, because you write in the book that your parents told you essentially to just listen and be polite and never interrupt. And it, it's sort of not what you think of as the characteristics of a judge, but you applied to a permanent appointment. Three months later, you get an appointment to the municipal court by but, Jerry Brown. Right. right. It took, it actually took more than two years. It so I two, applied. Two years, I'm sorry. In 1980, you apply. And then in 1982, you get appointed. That's right. Yes. And at the time of your appointment, you are the first African-American woman judge in all of Northern California. That's right. Isn't that stunning? This was 1982. Yeah. There had never been a black woman judge. So tell us, before we get to the, the, the book, as you say, is pre-war, you know, and, but before we get to some of the substance of the legal issues that I want to talk with you, tell us a little bit about being a judge. You, you write a couple of things that I made note of. You wrote that judging is not for the faint of heart. And I learned quickly that judging is as much a test of one's character and courage as it is a test of one's command of the law. So talk about being a judge. and Sure. So it's very interesting. When I started judging, uh, I was 32 years old and I was terrified and, you know, nobody tutored me on anything. I had been in court enough to know what judges say generally, but uh, just to be thrown into it, it was it was shocking, stunning, and I knew I had to rise to the occasion. And the pressures are there. So there are pressures on me. One, if anyone listening to your podcast has been the first in anything, there are always pressures when you're the first, because everyone's waiting for you to either screw it up or really do really well. And if you screw it up, then it screws it up for others who maybe look like you. Um, and that's basically the kinds of pressure I was under. I was under the pressure of uh, folks who are not used to seeing um, a black woman on the bench, who had never seen one before on the bench. Uh, and the pressure was a lot from prosecutors um, who were saying, 
Uh, she's pro- I was stereotyped. She's probably this liberal. She's going to let all these, you know, guilty people out and, you know, she's going to mess up. So the pressures were there. You could just hear there was gossip going around. And then there's pressures from communities of color saying, don't mess up, don't mess up, don't mess up. Because if you do, there won't be any of us for a long, long time. And in point of fact, um, there was a black male judge on the bench 20 years before I came on the scene. And he was the first and he didn't do so well. And he ended up, this is in the county in which I presided. He ended up being convicted of arson and obstruction of justice and removed from the bench. So you had this 20 year drought with no African-Americans. And then I come along. Um, so there was, there were just these unspoken yet palpable pressures. And that's true again of anybody who's a first certainly was on me. And then in judging, you know, I'm, I'm basically thinking when I go and look, there's, right and there's wrong. That's it. There's right and wrong. No, no. There are all these nuances, which requires judges to use discretion. There are moral, ethical issues. There are all kinds of things that come to play when judges have and what we utilize is discretion. So when we're told that, oh, you have to give this decision or you have to give this sentence because of mandatory sentencing, well, that's easy. Anybody can do that. A computer can do that. But in most instances, judges use discretion, which means bringing in everything we are, our backgrounds, who we are, how we look at people, our biases, all of that stuff comes into play, which makes judging one of the most challenging jobs ever. You know, the thing that struck me when reading it was I didn't think about it in terms of the word pressure, but I thought about it in terms of the word testing that everybody was testing you. The prosecutors were testing you. The defense attorneys were testing you. Everyone was going to try to figure out who is this anomaly that we're appearing before, because they really want to pigeonhole. I remember doing my legal aid and defender work when we were trying to get a plea. We always say, is Judge Halleck available? You know, because we knew that he was more sensitive to public defender types of concerns and sentencing. And we didn't want Judge Ryan because he was the, the dead opposite. So, you, you know, you, you judges all developed reputations and the, the lawyers learn how to, if you will, forum shop within the courthouse. So it must have been intense pressure and the testing of you yeah. throughout this entire period. Absolutely. I agree with you. And I like the word testing because that's really what it was. And I was being tested all the time for quite a long time. So can we turn to some of the substantive areas that you outlined in the book? You chose as a judge to rotate within the court system, meaning some judges will say, I want to only be in probate court or I only want to be in family court. Others judges will say, give me three years in family, and then I'll take three years in juvenile. And you did the rotation. So your book is a wonderful sort of outline of the entire uh, legal process. We won't have time to do all of them. Your readers are going to have to just buy this book and, and read it. But I'd like to talk about some of the ones that struck me as really important. And the way you structure the book is you identify the issue. You tell stories about your tenure in that division of the court, and then you have what you call fixes, proposed solutions for the problems that you've identified. So if we can, let's start with juvenile court, which is one of the most compelling parts of the judicial system. And you identify two primary issues, mandatory jury trials for felony prosecutions of juveniles and 
abolition of life without parole for juvenile offenders. So if you wouldn't mind, tell us about the juvenile court system when it was established back in the 1890s and what was its purpose in theory? Uh, Before we do that, Michael, I just want your listeners to know that I, this book is focused on state trial court judges. So as opposed to appellate judges and as opposed to federal judges. And the reason one is because I was a state trial court judge, but there are about 30,000 state trial court judges in this country. And each year, these judges receive 80 million new cases. And most people don't realize that the state court judges I call us, we're we're the front line, the people's court. We are the first people that people see when they come into the state court system. And that brings up your issue about all the different kinds of things that state trial court judges do. And you've mentioned some of them. So it's, you know, adult criminal and juvenile criminal cases, dependency cases involving kids who've been neglected or abused. And, you know, judges are the ones who put them in foster care. We got family court, divorces, child custody, child support, pet custody, pet support. We have adoptions, name changes, probate. You mentioned conservatorships, think Britney Spears, uh, drunk driving cases, mental health cases. It's judges who decide if someone who's in a locked psychiatric unit gets to get out. We decide all of that kind of stuff. Um, so I chose to preside over all of these cases because the law fascinated me. It still fascinates me. And by doing so, I was able to really get experience in all of these realms. So juvenile court, um, that that assignment just deeply touched me because, one, we're dealing with kids. So the, the first juvenile court started in Chicago, and this was in um, 1899 or 1900. Um, and so the rationale was, why do we need a different court for kids? Because kids are different from adults. That's why. And that juveniles, their minds aren't fully formed and they're not fully developed. And kids shouldn't be subjected to punishment for their misbehaving. They should get some rehabilitation and treatment and because they can be redeemed. I mean, that's the whole idea behind juvenile court. We don't give up on kids. Um, so that thinking, that philosophy, unfortunately, has changed over the years. And and what has happened is that juvenile courts have become more punitive. We're kind of turning away from it now in light of the Black Lives Matter movement. But, you know, kind of leading up to this, this is for, for centuries been less rehabilitation and treatment, more about punishment or taking juveniles and trying them as adults. And, and I have a real problem with that because that, then we are saying directly, we've given up on you. You have no hope. And that's why we're going to put you into the adult system. It really, when you look at the, the law, in 2005, it becomes unconstitutional to execute someone who is a juvenile at the time of the crime. 2010, unconstitutional to impose life sentence without parole for juvenile convict, who are convicted of non-homicide. 2012, unconstitutional for there to be mandatory life sentences without parole for juveniles convicted of homicide. This is 2010. This is happening. So you have 1899, the first court in Chicago, and it's not until 2010, more or less, that they're beginning to give life to some of the rehabilitation theories that underlie the juvenile justice system. It's pretty, yeah. It was pretty stunning. I didn't realize 
how long juveniles have really been subjected to all the rigors of the regular adult system. But as you point out, one major difference, and that is about jury trials and juveniles. So can you talk a little bit about it, what you found and what the statistics are around this sort of stuff? Absolutely. So um, most people don't realize that in the juvenile system, there are no juries. Uh, It is a judge who hears the facts, rules on the evidence, and then makes a decision in in juvenile delinquency court about whether or not the, the juvenile is guilty or not. Uh, so there is no right to a jury trial in juvenile court. And in my view, that, that when the Supreme Court made this ruling, um, I write in the book that the Supreme Court justices, none of them had experience in juvenile court. And yet they asserted that it's far better to have a judge uh, do this instead of a jury. And they, they and I write in the book, that's magical thinking. Um, and in the book, I do want to note for your listeners that I write about two cases in juvenile court that were um, really very interesting, fascinating, where I had to preside over and make decisions about uh, guilt or innocence and then what to do with the juveniles. So um, I believe that when juveniles, oh, oh, let me give you just this real stark and clear cut example. Um, so if I have an 18-year-old who's, chartered, who's an adult, then the 18-year-old has a right under the Sixth Amendment to a speedy jury trial. And let's say the 18-year-old is charged with armed robbery. Now, a 16-year-old, you know, you got two years different here, let's say has the same identical committed, accused of committing the identical crime in armed robbery, a felony, just like the 18-year-old, the 18-year-old gets a jury trial, but the 16-year-old doesn't. That, to me, makes no sense because once that 16-year-old has a felony on his or her record, that's a record. I mean, it's there. Um, the punishment may be different because in juvenile court in California, the maximum time for which a juvenile can be incarcerated is up to the age of 25. Uh, but still, I mean, that's a long time, particularly if you're a 15-year-old, 10 years. Um, so what I advocate for is that um, juveniles should have the right, uh, if they're charged with serious crimes, or charged with felonies, to and charged in juvenile and tried in juvenile court, they should have a right to a jury trial. There are some states that allow this, uh, and I think that it should be available to all juveniles in all the states. And let's, for the listening audience, we're going to get to it in a moment, but remember now that Juveniles only get tried before judges. And then we're going to talk in a few minutes, Judge Cordell, about implicit bias and how implicit bias within the judiciary manifests itself in the types of sentences that juveniles are faced with based on race and other on other issues. But so we have fix one for juveniles is felony prosecutions, jury trials. The second one is another one of these shocking things that I didn't really fully focus on, which is the possibility of juveniles getting life sentences without parole as a possibility. So you can be convicted at age 15 or 16 or 17 if you're brought in adult court and sentenced to life without parole. So much for rehabilitation and the the theory that it will give kids a second chance. Right. Um, so the Supreme Court has ruled that you cannot, that it, when a, ju- a juvenile can be sentenced to life without parole, 
But um, that's within the discretion of a judge. It isn't mandatory. So you can't have a law in your state that says if a juvenile is convicted of this crime, then they have to go away forever. Uh, so but that being said, there are still judges who impose these sentences on juveniles, which means, you know, you go in at 15 or 16 and the rest of your life. And the message we're sending to that juvenile is we've given up on you. You are absolutely hopeless. You cannot be redeemed. And I, I have a problem with that. Well, and statistically speaking, you write that 23.2% of juvenile arrests for murder involve African-American suspects killing white victims and 42.4% of life sentences without parole for African-Americans convicted of this crime. Right. So here we go with um, bias. Um, You know, race has always been the elephant in the courtroom. And since the murder of George Floyd, since Black Lives Matter, uh, that elephant now is no one's tiptoeing around the elephant. Uh, People are fortunately calling it out. Uh, When I was on the bench and tried to call it out, I got a lot of pushback, Uh, but times have changed. Um, And I I say to folks, uh, you know, when you feel it's right to speak out on issues like this, I hope that people have the courage to do it. Will you get pushback? Of course. Uh, But that's a part of um, doing the right thing and being able, being willing to stand up and, and um, speak up on, on these kinds of things. So, um, yes, uh, you'll see throughout the book, um, race is um, certainly an important issue that underlines much of what goes on in our legal system. You catalog the various aspects by which implicit bias manifests itself, this so-called elephant in the room. And maybe you could talk a little bit about you've got in the criminal justice system, it, it manifests itself in charging decisions in bail decisions, in plea bargain offers, in the way judges behave in the courtroom, peremptory challenges. There are batches of things that this sentencing, parole, that this, how this manifests itself. So pick a couple of these things and let's talk about how they show up, how invidious they are. Sure. And so one thing, Michael, I want people to understand is that I don't believe that the whole legal system is just broken and we just need to start over. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that there is good in our legal system. The good is that we, we're, the, the system is based on these fabulous principles, you know, that all are created equal and the pursuit of life, liberty, happiness, all of that stuff. The problem in our legal system has been in the implementation of these principles. They have not been implemented fairly. And the people who came up with these principles were propertied white men who did not intend for these principles to apply to women, to people of color, to poor people. So, so I, I just want to make clear, I mean, we, there's much to be done. Our job is to see that these principles are applied fairly and equally and justly, and they're not. So you have named several areas where there has not been fairness, just justice and equality. And, and and we're just looking right now at just the criminal legal system. And those, I don't call it a criminal justice system. We're not there yet. We are working for that goal. It's a criminal legal system until such time we can remedy. So one of the things you brought up was uh, jury selection Um, and jury selection. I have a whole chapter in the book called thank you for your service. And it's all about jurors and jury duty. And part of it is 
uh, peremptory challenges. And peremptory challenges basically are, are each side in a criminal case, and they can also be used in civil where people are suing each other. But in criminal cases, they're mostly used. And one side, a prosecution or the defense, can get rid of a juror, can a prospective juror, for no reason. You don't have to say a reason. But if the other side says, well, wait a minute, you just got rid of three prospective jurors and all of them were black, that you can't do that. That's racism. Then it's up to the judge to turn to the person, usually a prosecutor, who says, well, why did you dismiss those jurors? If the prosecutor can come up with race-neutral explanations, then it's up to the judge to decide whether or not that's kosher. Uh, and historically, judges have just rubber-stamped these um, race-neutral explanations, which are, in my view, many instances, absolutely ridiculous and a cover for racism. So I talk about peremptory challenges and talk about um, and give examples of some of these race-neutral explanations that just will set your head spinning, where judges have said, oh, that's okay. Oh, that's fine. No problem. Uh, so, and it was Thurgood Marshall who called it out. He called uh, peremptory challenges the greatest embarrassment in the criminal justice system because it's a cover in many instances for racism. Uh, so in the book, I propose you know, a fix um, which is not to abolish peremptory challenges. I was a litigator. I was a criminal defense attorney. I, I used my peremptory challenges sometimes when I had a gut feeling like, uh-uh, this juror is not going to do what I need. But I, I didn't have a cause, a specific reason, but I just had a gut feeling. So I, I, I'm not advocating abolishing them. Um, what I'm advocating is that judges need to do their jobs and step up. And when these race neutral explanations are given to dig deep and really determine whether or not this is just cover. Judges have not been doing that, but they ought to be doing it. And in California, you know, we've taken the lead. We passed uh, recently the governor signed the Racial Justice Act, which tells judges Keep racism out of our criminal legal system. You are the ones that can do it. So step up. And this act gives remedies. It says to judges, if you find that that wasn't race neutral, you can bring that prospective juror back and put that person on the jury. Or you can start jury selection all over. I mean, there are remedies there. And so that's a start. Um, there's a lot of pushback from judges who think, oh, my God, this is going to take too much time. Well, justice takes time. And push back from prosecutors who do not like to be questioned. I mean, they like to think they're in control in the courtroom. Well, the judge is in control and judges need to step up. Well, exactly right. And just to back up for a minute, it's not until 1986 when you have the decision in Batson versus Kentucky that the Supreme Court says striking people for race is unconstitutional. I mean, so again, here we are. 1986 is the first time that the Supreme Court is saying to prosecutors, because they're the ones who do it, stop it. It's unconstitutional. But as you say, and you talk about it, maybe you talk about it. I know we're trying to save the stories for the reader, but maybe you could talk a little bit about the training that prosecutors got, I think, in North Carolina in the aftermath of Batson, where it was illegal now, unconstitutional for them to strike for reasons of race. Sure. What, and and what, this what is recent. Yeah, Michael, this is recent. This is like happening now. Uh, so I write in the book about uh, what prosecutors were doing to try to get around this Batson decision from the U.S. Supreme Court that says you can't do this. You can't, you know, you have to give race neutral explanations. 
And so what they have done, at least in one instance in North Carolina, there was a statewide uh, meeting of prosecutors and there was a seminar, a session on how to give these race neutral explanations to cover up that you're kicking off black people or people of color. And they actually had a, a, a brochure, a booklet that had, okay, here's what the things you can say. And these were basically stereotypes about black people. So you could say uh, the person uh, was looking at me and the person's eyes looked angry or the person was dressed in jeans and a t-shirt, which means they really weren't serious about serving on a jury, all kinds of things. These were just appalling. And these were sessions that were being provided to give prosecutors uh, the wherewithal about how to get around um, and still do their racist thing by kicking people of color off without actually calling it that. It's interesting. I was surprised to read in 2019 the, the Flowers versus Mississippi decision. Maybe we can talk a little bit about it. And, sure. and interestingly, Judge Kavanaugh is the author of the opinion. And he did a wonderful deal. I mean, I don't, I have many negative feelings about Justice Kavanaugh for a number of reasons, just basically, you know, what he stands for. But in that case, he wrote the majority opinion, uh, which basically said and I, that Batson means what it says. And we shouldn't, judges just shouldn't be just, you know, basically rubber stamping. Uh, so in the Flowers case, um, Mr. Flowers was tried six times for murder, six times, and was the same prosecutor. And each time the prosecutor would just uh, boot off all prospective black jurors and get a conviction with an all-white jury, and then it would get reversed because he booted them off. And then he was told, you know, so this happened repeatedly. And finally, Mr. Flowers is free today. Uh, but And finally, this case, Flowers, it finally works its way back up again to the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's when Kavanaugh wrote uh, this decision, the majority opinion in it, um, reversing the Flowers decision. So he, he's out. He can't be tried again. But imagine being tried six times and getting convicted five of the six times. Um, and so Kavanaugh just basically said, Batson, we need, judges need to uphold the spirit of Batson. And what this prosecutor did was so bad and so unethical um, that this case, you know, he could no longer be on the case. My concern is what happened to that prosecutor? Did that prosecutor get to just walk away and like, all right, I messed up five times. I did exactly what I should never have done, did it knowingly, and, and probably no repercussions. That would be my guess. The likelihood that he was put before the, the ethics committee of a, of a bar for it is probably slight to zero, which is you know a problem. And it's the same problem that exists with judges. You talk in the book about judges and how judges impact in micro ways what's going on in their courtroom. And they send signals that impact the way the jury should perceive the case. So we talk a little bit about these behaviors. Absolutely. So judges are human beings, They're human beings. And every human being on this planet has biases. Everyone. I have biases. Of course we do. And biases are our way also of helping us survive. At the same time, if you have biases that basically stereotype people, 
without getting to know them, that can be a problem, especially if you're a judge. Now, there are good stereotypes and there are bad stereotypes. But the fact is, you're saying, based on what your belief is about a group of people, that's what I believe about that one individual. So the question that had came that came up, um, and this is a part of a study that I was a participant in and a co-author of the study, um, was to look at the verbal and nonverbal behavior of judges and how did it affect juries. When I presided over jury trials, every time I would look up, jurors were staring at me. They're looking at me. We have witnesses going, but they'd always be looking. And because they're trying to read the judge, trying to say, well, does this judge like this witness or does this judge uh, like this lawyer? And so even if I was poker face, which I was most of the time, they're even reading from that. Oh, the judge isn't interested or the judge is really focused. Um, So we actually did a study and looked at jurors' reactions in actual trials to what the judges were doing. And what did we find? We found that jurors were indeed influenced by certainly verbal behavior if the judge is just angry. So take the the judge in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, where the judge, in my view, clearly sided with the defense, hated the prosecution, and really liked Kyle. And there were all kinds of things the judge did by saying things. But in addition, there's the nonverbal. So the judge who rolls her eyes, who spins around in his chair when someone is testifying, or as in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, there's a photo of the optic is amazing of the judge leaning over, sitting at the bench to look at something. Maybe it's a piece of evidence. And Kyle Rittenhouse is at the witness stand leaning over and basically touching almost arm to arm right beside the judge. It's like they're peering over together. So the judge had a lot of comfort, no issue with having the defendant right up on him as they were looking at, at evidence. And that sent a message to the jury clearly sent a message that the judge was thinking, oh, this is just a kid and he's a good kid. Look, he's even close to the judge. Um, so the, the, the message is to judges, watch what you say and watch what you do. And everything, everything we do should be in a way that does not distract from the trial and um, does not demonstrate how the judge actually feels about what's going on in the case. And it dovetails with your notion that in the implicit bias area, that judges really need much more thorough and ongoing training. And, but more importantly, which I thought you could talk about, is the recommendation that there be periodic audits of discretional rulings. I thought that was a brilliant suggestion, if I may say so. You may say so, yes. (laughs) Um, So, Okay, a big industry is really developed, and it's the implicit bias training industry. Everybody's jumping. Let's train police. Let's train implicit bias. And what is it? Implicit means you don't know you have it until you figure out that you have this bias. And then once you have it, you're supposed to do something about it, which is don't demonstrate the bias. Be very aware of it. Um, so, I, you know, you can train judges. You can bring them into a group and talk about race and gender and all of that stuff and hope that they will get it. But uh, in my view, that's not the way to ensure that judges are not using biases in ways that harm, that are harmful to litigants in the case and that really don't help our legal system as a whole. So what I've proposed is let's look at rulings where judges have to use their discretion. So setting bail. So if I do an audit of Judge X and I look and I see, wow, that's interesting, 
every time there's a defendant of color in the judge's court, the bail goes through the roof. And then I look and see white defendants and the bail for similar kinds of offenses is really low. Or I see bail really high for women and or low for women and higher for men. Well, what is that? So it's about then saying to the judge, look at this. This is how you've used your discretion. Let's talk about this. Not saying to the judge, oh, you're a sexist or racist, but saying, let's talk about this and why this is happening. Um, restraining orders in domestic violence cases. Some judges maybe use your discretion. And why is that a certain judge is not issuing restraining orders when women come into the court? What is that? So that's another way of determining the kinds of bias that perhaps, you know, that judges have. We all have biases, but we don't want them to work to the detriment of those in our court. And I think related to that, which is sort of a theme throughout the book, too, is how prosecutors exercise their discretion. And while we've just talked now about how judges use implicit bias and other devices to sort of rig the outcome, prosecutors and prosecutorial discretion, especially around charging, who gets charged with what is of a critical foundational element to a fair criminal justice system. And maybe we can talk a little bit about the prosecutorial charging process. And one of the things that you spend a fair bit of time on, which I thought was really important, was the application of the felony murder rule. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about it, where it's used and how it's used. And I know we haven't been talking about cases much, but if you could tell us about uh, Jessica T's case, I think that would be instructive on the dangers that the felony murder rule present to justice. Absolutely. Um, so the felony murder rule is a rather simple rule. It says if you engage in, can commit a felony, and as a result of that felony, let's say a robbery, someone is killed, then you are as liable for the killing as the person who did the actual deed. It's the felony murder rule. Uh, so the, it's currently used in 45 states. California recently abolished it. And um, so the felony murder rule came to my attention uh, when I presided in juvenile court and a young woman, Jessica T., a teenager, 15 years old, was charged by the prosecutor with felony murder. Um, and very briefly, she hooked up with a group of young people who were 18, 19, and 21. There were maybe total four of them. And she was, um, she had problems at home. She was a runaway, but she'd never been involved in criminal activity. And they came up with a plan to steal um, a person's van and just go to LA and live in LA. So she was part of the group when they lured this young man with his van to the park. She then left um, the park to go get her her stuff from her parents' home. And during the time that she was away, the uh, young man was killed. And the young man had shown up with someone else in his van. So they pulled them both out of the van. Uh, the people there at the park stabbed one of them. And then when she showed up, Jessica came back. She sees all this. And they said, get in. They get in the van and off they go. They were captured shortly thereafter, charged with murder. She was charged with felony murder. 
Um, I presided over the trial and it felony murder was the rule in California at the time. And after a trial, I found her guilty of felony murder, uh, even though she was not a murderer. She never was a murderer. She didn't know anyone had a weapon. She didn't know there was going to be a killing. Uh, she had no idea about it. But because I'm a judge who took an oath to uphold all of the laws in California, even the laws that I did not like, I upheld my oath. And the evidence showed that she was guilty of felony murder. Um, so the big part about this was if, uh, what to do with someone who's a murderer, but she really isn't. And that part of the book is a real odyssey because I, I had to really, um, I got some people, I guess, really bent out of shape when I fashioned a sentence for her uh, that included my determining in California that there was sex discrimination and where juvenile males could be held and where females could be held. And there was a big difference in that there was places for juvenile males to be held in other than a, a locked up facility, but none for females. So I had to really kind of push back and um, get her settled. And, and as the readers will see in the book, Jessica ended up doing um, her time and she has done well in life since then. I just wish she weren't today labeled a murderer because she isn't. And the way it plays out, as you just described, is she had no prior intention of murdering. There was no plan, no premeditation. It just, she was part of what would, I guess, be called a carjacking, a, a stealing of someone's vehicle to go on on this on this trip. That's all she ever thought she was going to be part of. And then she ends up being a murderer by yeah. virtue of this rule. Is this rule... I know it's in 45 states. It's, I know it's here in the District of Columbia because it's charged all the time in the D.C. Superior mm. Court, but it, not so around the world, right? Exactly. So our system is really kind of modeled on the, the system utilized in England. And in England, that, that rule, the felony murder rule, they did away with it in the late 1950s. Uh, so it's not used anywhere other than here in this country. And in my view, the fix abolish the felony murder rule. I mean, you can aid and abet a crime and be charged with that and be punished for that. But no way is the person who did the stabbing or pulled the trigger um, as culpable as the person who wasn't involved at all. I mean, you can't, there's just, there's, there's, it's patently unfair in my view to, to treat them the same. If they are part of a conspiracy to do this, then you'll charge them exactly. accordingly. But exactly. if it just happens to be, you know, if someone's going to go rob the 7-Eleven and the plan is go rob the 7-Eleven, I'll sit in the car and I'll drive you there and drive you home. And in the course of the robbery, a murder occurs. You're guilty of that murder, even though you've never set foot in the 7-Eleven. And the explicit agreement was no one gets hurt. We're just taking money. Right. And, and things go wrong, and there you are, a uh, convicted murderer. It's a it's a very compelling part of the of the narrative that you lay out. Another part that struck me with equal sort of force was your discussion of plea bargaining and two particular parts of plea bargaining: Alfred pleas, and then this terrible thing, which I didn't realize was going on, was the foregoing of civil lawsuits 
as part of a post plea plea bargain. So if you could talk a little bit about Alfred and what impact that's had on our uh, properly say we aren't at criminal justice is an aspiration. We're at a, we're in a criminal system. Got um, it. Exactly. Um, so it's really interesting. So so that everyone understands a plea bargain is just that it's a bargain. It's a deal. It's a deal. A prosecutor will say, uh, if you plead uh, guilty to count one, I'll dismiss counts two, three, four, and five. And then, because if, if you want to go to trial and you're convicted on all those, you're going to do a lot more time versus just doing count one. And then the defendant either agrees and then, then they have a deal. They have a bargain. Uh, so what most people don't know is that 98% of all criminal cases in the federal courts and in state courts are resolved by way of plea bargains, 98%. So you have like 2% that end up going the full way. So is that a good thing? Well, in a way it is because um, there are plenty of people who plead guilty on a plea bargain because they're guilty. And we save victims from maybe going through the trauma of having to go to trial. Plea bargains free up courtrooms so we can try these other cases. But then there's another side of it. These plea bargains, in my view, are uh, in the main, they're coercive. It's all controlled by prosecutors. They're the ones that make the deals. Judges don't make the deals. I can make a deal once there's a plea bargain about what the sentence might be. But as far as getting the guilty plea, it's prosecutors. Um, and my concern is that um, these plea bargains are in the main, they're coercive and basically deprive people of going to trial. One, because they're afraid that they might get convicted on all these counts. And quite frankly, prosecutors are not that interested in counts three, four, and five. They just charge it. They overcharge it to get the pressure on to get people to plead to the one thing they want. Um, but the second part are judges, because I have heard judges say, and I've had lawyers tell me judges have said, they get a defendant in their court and they learned that the defendant turned down the plea bargain and the judges ticked off. Okay, you turned it down. Sure, we're going to go to trial. And if you're convicted by this jury, I'm throwing the book at you. So it's called a trial penalty. It's really got a name now. And there's a movement to stop this because what a trial penalty does by coming from a judge and these coercive plea bargains is that it flies in the face of the Sixth Amendment that guarantees everyone a right to a speedy jury trial if you are charged with a crime. So so there's the coercive part. And then there's the second part. And this is thanks to the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court has said, and this was in 1970, even if you claim you're innocent plead, and you plead guilty, that's okay. That's, that's just fine. Uh, you're still guilty. We're going to find you guilty, even though you resist it. And it's called an Alford plea, A-L-F-O-R-D. So Henry Alford pled guilty to a murder. And he pled because the prosecutor says, if you go to trial, I'm asking for the death penalty. But if you want to plead to this, then you'll just get life. We won't get the death penalty. So he pled. And then he appealed. And he said, I was coerced into this. I didn't do this crime. And uh, this, this shouldn't stand. Um, as a result of Alfred, when he went to the Supreme Court, the court found that there was plenty of evidence to show that Henry Alfred did the murder. They weren't really worried about that. But they also said it's okay for people to claim their innocence, but yet plead because they don't want to take the risk of going to trial. And so the Alfred plea has been with us. And um, it's estimated that there are over a million people in our state prisons who were 
incarcerated after taking Alfred pleas. Now, sure, a lot of people are guilty and claim they're innocent. They're not innocent. They're guilty. But what about the people who claim they're innocent and they are, in fact, innocent? And we know that exists because we can look at people who have been exonerated. How many have been exonerated in this country where they're sitting in prison or in death row who admitted, pled it, but they said, I was coerced and I didn't want to take the risk of going to trial. So I have a concern um, about the use of Alfred pleas, and that's where we come to the study. So two professors did a study to see whether or not, is this for real? Or would, would a defendant really plead guilty to something if the defendant didn't in fact do it? So they used, I think there were 26 students at a small college in the Southeast, and they uh, took a course and they accused a number of the students of cheating when they hadn't cheated. Only one student had cheated. And so these students who were accused of cheating were basically told, okay, um, you can admit you cheated. Remember, none of them cheated. You can admit you cheated and, you know, there'll be a minor kind of sanction for it. But if you decide not to, you're going to go before a faculty board and the faculty board usually finds 90% of the cases they find the the students uh, who are accused of doing what they did, find them guilty. As well, you'll also have to do additional hours and just lay down a whole lot of sanctions, penalties for them. And a whopping, I think it was 90 percent, I'm not quite sure, I can't remember now, uh, of the students or 80 percent, just pled, said, yeah, okay, I cheated. Um, and because they just felt the pressure, oh my God, what will happen? I don't want to take the risk. But they, in fact, were innocent. So they, this study kind of gave more credence to the fact, and I think it's factual now, that there are many people in our criminal system who will plead guilty when they are innocent because the U.S. Supreme Court says, that's ah, okay, go right and do it. I have a real problem with that. One last thing. There's a new and very disturbing twist in the plea bargaining system, and that is the requirement that people relinquish their right to sue after they've been exonerated in order to be released from prison. Can you talk about that, please? Right. So, I mean, it's just really shocking to know that people who have been convicted but are in fact innocent, and it's been proven that they're innocent, uh, are not able to, in some instances, sue the very municipalities that wrongfully incarcerated them. Uh, I point out two cases in the book. One is the um, four indigenous Alaskan men who were convicted of a murder of a white teenager. And this was in the late 1990s. Uh, It was established later because of prosecutorial misconduct, police misconduct, that in fact, they had been wrongfully convicted. Um, So they were offered a deal. And the deal was, if you um, take the deal, we'll drop the charges, you can get out, um, but you can't sue us. You, you, you have no right to file a lawsuit. Um, so they could take the deal or, you know, stay in longer and fight for their innocence, uh, perhaps at another trial. So they reluctantly took the deal. So they're in fact innocent. They got out, but they can't turn around and sue for the wrongful conduct that that occurred in their case. And then there's the even more egregious case, if it can be more egregious, and that of a man named Jimmy Dennis who served 25 years in solitary confinement for a murder he did not commit. Uh, so when it was determined by a federal judge 
there were all these things that went wrong. I'm talking misconduct by prosecutors and by police. Um, he was told this man deserves to have a new trial. Uh, so what the prosecutors did, and I think this was, was out of Philadelphia, and what the prosecutor basically said was, all right, uh, Mr. Dennis, um, you can either have a right to uh, a new trial, and that may take many, many years because it takes time, or you can plead no contest to uh, a lesser charge. So what are you going to do? You've been in solitary confinement for 25 years over something you didn't do, and they're telling you to, to wait longer. So he took the deal. He pled no contest. No contest means I'm not contesting this guilty plea. And it really means it's a guilty plea. But he's basically saying, I'm not contesting it because he wanted to get out. He took the deal. Then Mr. Dennis turned around and filed a lawsuit, which makes sense because of all of the bad behavior that took place in getting him there and getting him convicted. And it turns out that the law was that uh, he had no right to be compensated because he wasn't proven in fact innocent because he pled no contest. So there was no real finding of factual innocence. And so he was he was out just because he took the deal in order to get freedom for a crime that he did not commit. I, I just find it all appalling that the wrongfully convicted um, have to give up their right to be compensated in order to to uh, get out, to accept a plea bargain like that. It's terrible. And I think that another problem that you identified that relates to this in my mind, because it's judges who accept these pleas, judges who accept these overcharged charges in the state system, they don't have to accept those charges. And it dovetails to me in one of the most important parts of the book on how do you fix this system? And that relates to the election of judges. And maybe you could talk, well, you ran, you had a run for uh, your seat the second, second time round. And maybe we could talk a little bit about the election of judges and what impact it has on the justice system, the criminal system, and what your fix is for sure. it. Uh, in a chapter I call Judges for Sale, I talk about the election of judges. Um, and in my view, elections of judges have become all about special moneyed interests, investing in individuals that they think will do their bidding. And uh, that's not what uh, a healthy judiciary should be about. That's not what an independent judiciary um, should be about. So I have a very, I have a real concern about the election of judges. Um, typical races now for tri state trial court judges and for the appellate judges can run into the millions of dollars. And there's TV advertising, radio advertising, all kinds of things. And, and special groups are weighing in. They want judges that will maybe be more on the business side and rule in favor of business and pumping money into all of these. I can talk about this with credibility because uh, for me to move up, I was appointed, as you noted, by Jerry Brown in 1982, but I wanted to move up to the next level of a trial court, which is a superior court in California. And to do that, there was an opening. There was no one in that seat. And I chose to run and someone else chose to run. And that was a prosecutor. So I've done that. I've had to raise the money, battle it out, have the lawn signs, uh, billboards, whatever it took 
uh, to to get elected. And I was successful at it. I didn't enjoy it. And I don't think it bodes well for our judiciary. Uh, so, you know, my fix is no more judicial elections. We just need to stop them entirely and go to um, independent nominating commissions that are peopled by um, non-lawyers, by lawyers, by retired judges, and um, they their entire process should be transparent, open to the public, where they vet nominees, uh, people who want to be judges. And for those who want to stay on the bench and for another term and their term is up, then uh, they are vetted as well. And they get feedback. This commission gets feedback from lawyers who appeared before the judge who wants to stay on another term and from litigants and gets a sense about who these people are. Uh, in most states, it's the governor that makes has the final say. And the governor should be given a slate of people from whom to pick that have been vetted by this commission and pick from that. In California, we have something similar to that, although the governor is not bound to pick anybody that the commission comes up with. And that's a problem, and I think that needs to be changed, and the governor should not be able to go rogue and just get whoever else the governor wants. And what I think is brilliant about these nominating commissions is your earlier recommendation of these audits, judges who are coming up for re-election or reappointment even, the audit has to go before the commission and the commission then evaluates how this judge is applying his or her discretion to see whether they're doing it justly or not. So I think it's, it's, it's terrific. And I think the brilliance of the proposition is borne out by the data that you submit from the Brennan Center. Yes. Which, which, uh, do you want to tell us? Oh, go right ahead. You, well, I don't want to interrupt you. The Brennan Center here in Washington has been tracking ads and behaviors of judges in and around elections. And what they found is that the closer to re-election, judges' sentences for criminal defendants with serious crime are much longer than normally imposed sentences. Trial judges that have the power to impose death sentences in election years do so overwhelmingly and do it by overriding even the verdicts for non-death by jurors. Right. I mean, it's it's a very sad commentary on the fact that that nobody gets upset when judges impose harsh, really harsh sentences over the top. We don't get upset. But when a judge, and I was one of those, I mean, I, I listen, I wasn't a pushover. But when I felt that mercy was appropriate, then I would utilize mercy, which is what I did in the Jessica T case. And I caught hell in the media from prosecutors for not, you know, throwing the book at this, quote unquote, murderer. Um, and, and it's just to me very sad that when you have judges who show mercy, they're the ones that get targeted. And that's really what happened in California when Aaron Persky, who was eventually recalled, um, and if this was, it just became a whole national issue, was because he didn't, you know, impose a, a real harsh sentence on the Stanford student who was uh, convicted by a jury of a, of a sexual assault. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm saddened by the fact that, um, um, judges feel that in order to get elected, that they have to go over the top and really throw the book at people, which is, again, a product of the entire election system. You write about judges that they are either activists 
for justice or black-robed do-nothings. And Dean Houston, the late dean of Howard Law School, and who was instrumental in uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, had a great quote, too, which was, lawyers are either social engineers or parasites on society. Maybe a little harsh, but... but Yeah, but, you know, judicial activism has gotten a bad name because it is usually defined as judges who go rogue, who don't care about the law, and just go off the rails. Uh, That's not my definition of judicial activism. And I was a judicial activist. A judicial activist has respect for precedent. That means for whatever the laws are, but seeks every minute of the day that when they're on the bench to find ways to make the system work better. That's an activist judge that we should all want on the bench. And when judges, you know, there are only hands full of judges. And if you look at what, 400 million people in this country and 30,000 state trial court judges, these are very, you know, hard to get positions and they should not, the time should not be wasted while judges are there. Um, so, and I write in the book about the times I tried to do that, be an activist judge, make change, make the system change. And I inevitably got pushback, pushback, pushback. And yeah, systems resist change. All systems do, uh, including our legal system. But um, that's the challenge. And I say to lawyers who want to become judges and to judges who are already on the bench, our trial court judges, use your time to be an activist judge, to find ways to make this system better and fairer for everyone. And I think the way I'd like to end our conversation, if you wouldn't mind, on a lighter note, but it proves the point of judges matter. And that's the time that you were in court and the role you had to play related to people changing their name. And if you would tell us a little bit about how you approach that in transgender cases and then read. I'd love to take us out of here with Lisa's letter to you because sure. it makes your heart feel good. Sure. So I, I'm going to, to, to do as you ask, but with a, with a little twist. Um, I want people to read the letter, but I want to tell people about the backstory on the letter. So when they get to it, they'll get it. So let me go back to name changes. So one of the things that trial judges do is that we decide if you can change your name. If you file a petition in court, then you have a hearing. You come in, the judge asks, why do you want to change your name? What do you want? And done. And there are certain things you have to do beforehand. File a petition, publish in a a legal classifieds uh, that you want to change your name for four consecutive weeks so people know. It's not a sneaky thing. And then you come into court. Uh, So I presided over lots of name changes. I loved that because everybody was happy. Um, And at some point, um, this would have been in the 1990s, there started, I started seeing some name changes come in from people who had changed their gender, had gone from male to female or female to male. And think back then, this is the 1990s. It took a lot of courage back then. Today, it's more of a, it's not a thing. Um, so what I would do when I knew that these cases were coming in because I had the files ahead of time, I'd make sure that uh, I'd get all the name change cases done and then call that case. So the person would not be embarrassed. And again, think about the time. So on this particular day, and I'm just going to read from the book here. Uh, the courtroom was empty of spectators when I called her case. Um, she came forward, stood at one of the council tables and smiled nervously. 
In no time, the hearing was over. I approved her petition and signed the order. And after my clerk handed it to her, off she went. A few days later, I received this letter. So in the book on page 105 is the letter. And I end this chapter with one sentence after the letter. And that sentence is, it doesn't get any better than this. So I'll leave the letter for people to read. It's very touching. But here's the backstory. When I wrote this chapter, I then uh, put the letter in. And this is the manuscript and sent it off to my editor at Celadon. Uh, and I was told, you know, you can't use this letter unless you have permission from the author of the letter. I said, no, 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 no. The letter went to me. She wrote to me. So it's my letter. Not in the publishing world. In the publishing world, the letter belongs to the person who wrote it and you have to get permission. So I hadn't seen this person only one time in court and it had been 40 years ago. So I had to find her. I found her on the internet. I found her. Uh, and so I reached out. She remembered me right away, remembered writing the letter and initially did not give me permission because she said things were really tough and she still was not even all these years, real comfortable with being herself. And eventually she called back in a week and said, yes, you have permission, but on one condition. The condition is that I get a signed autographed copy of the book from you. I have done that. I have seen her since then at a book event here. So I'm delighted that I got permission and I'm delighted that I was able to put this letter in the book. It's a great letter. It brings... There's a lot of stuff in the book that brings tears to your eyes, but mostly it's over injustice. But this was a wonderful tear to your eye, happy. As you said, it doesn't get any better than this. So, Judge Cordell, the the honor was mine to have the conversation to speak to you about her honor, my life on the bench, what works, what's broken, and how to change it. And I really, really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me today. Thank you so much, Michael. I've enjoyed this, and thank you so much for Um, the kind words you have about the book. My pleasure. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.